All right, and we are live. Bismillah. Assalamu alaikum, guys. Welcome to the Omarpreneur Live podcast, where I interview Muslim entrepreneurs at the top of their game to bring you their perspective on business, mindset, lifestyle, entrepreneurship, and everything in between. And today I have none other than my dear friend and brother, Yahya Asawi. Brother Asawi, assalamu alaikum. Alaikum assalam, How are you, it's, Abby? I'm very good. Yourself? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Alhamdulillah, it's an honor. And just to kind of let you guys know as you're connecting who this special guest is. So Brother Asawi is a multidisciplinary designer. He's an architect and he's really a leader of all things digital. He's worked with companies like Tangerine, KPMG, RBC, Toyota, and Manulife, just to name a few. And really, not only does he work in the world of design, but he's also really someone who prioritizes innovation and he challenges orthodoxies. He really thinks of how to combine design with leadership, how to harness trends, leverage resources to inspire organizations and innovate. And what we're going to talk about today, what we're going to focus on is really his experience in crafting and leading innovation strategies that have proven to not only impact organizations in terms of design, but in terms of leadership as well. So we're going to talk about the intersect between design and leadership and really what that means, how we can learn to be better leaders, how we can learn what are the aspects that fall into design and leadership, what are the commonalities, and what can we take away from this to become better leaders ourselves. And I'm super excited to dive in. So again, Assalamu alaikum, brother. It's such a pleasure to have you. And while people are connecting, the best question that I love to ask, really the, the thing that is my favorite is, yeah. let's share a little bit more about you right? What's your story like? How did you get to be, you know, this amazing designer and, and really this taking part in senior level management in these companies, which I'm sure is a goal for a lot of people. Can you share with us the journey a little bit behind that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, growing up, I, I grew up in an Egyptian family. So um, as, as many of your viewers may uh, relate, uh, you're kind of giving a pseudo choice, which is... Um, you know, you either become a doctor or an engineer. Right. <laughs> and, and, and those are the, the choices that you have. So so I, I kind of, growing up, I started thinking of myself as a problem solver. That's how I kind of branded who I am. I'm a problem solver. Naturally, I also love technology. I started playing with, with computers since I was um, very young. And, and it's something that I enjoyed. So as a result, um, I studied computer systems engineering. That was, that was what I specialized in. And um, I kind of had this glimpse of cognitive science when I did some courses in linguistics. So my, that was my first window into uh, some questions that fundamentally, I think uh, some of us may, may ask around, why do people behave in a certain way? Why do they make decisions? Um, are we rational as humans? Because sometimes a lot of the decisions that we make are irrational. And, and then it, it kind of, it was a curiosity but you know i stayed the course so so I, I started my career very much on the technical side um as a developer as a as an architect as a software development manager but there was that constant curiosity itch you know that itch that you get when you're given something and you're said you're, you're being said or you're asked to go build it go go solve this problem and it's given to you it's transactional and that itch for me was more around, well, why am I doing this? What, what's the purpose? Is this, um, you know, is this the right problem to solve? Um, typically, it comes from an executive or someone senior in the organization, and 
you start thinking like just this smart person at the top that knows all the answers and they're giving you that and you start challenging that. So that itch is what got me into design. Naturally, mm -hmm. it kept on moving me towards the left, moving me towards um, rather than solving problems blindly, aiming to be part of discovering and being able to be part of the discovery of the right problems to solve. Um, and, and, I, and I think that throughout my life, that this idea of starting with purpose, not just focusing on execution and asking a lot of why questions is what kind of guided me. And uh, leadership just came naturally as I was always interested in helping others and growing and positively influencing the lives of others. That's why I like to be a teacher or mentor um and, and i'm very big on meaningful causes you know things that that i think uh we want to see a change in maybe we won't be able to see that change in our lifetime but these are things that we still want to contribute to and feel that we uh we make an impact and and here we are all right that's amazing Michelle. and i love that you actually approached it from really the background and the purpose behind it and i want to ask you when you were when you were younger did you did you look at problems in the way that you look at them now? Because I know you mentioned you were initially an engineer, but then you gravitated more towards what people would say. I mean, design would be considered artistic. So is it that you mm -hmm. felt you were more of a creative than someone that was more logistical? Uh, so so unlike a lot of the stories that you're probably going to hear from, from other designers where I always love to draw or uh, I had an artistic side, that's not the case with me. Mm -hmm. I, I really thought of, um, you know, I, I was I was very curious. Uh, I had that curiosity, but I was it, it, I got into design because of that curiosity, you know, mm -hmm. be, because of of trying to uh, to be curious about something and then asking, you know, I call them the four C's when curiosity is one of them, obviously having that courage, uh, but also having a, a compassion. Uh, mm -hmm. All these three, you have to combine them with the fourth C, which is craftsmanship. So I, I think for me, naturally, it was that curiosity, that, that um, you know, willing or willingness or need to change. It was less of the artistic side. And I would say, uh, despite that, maybe that's the majority of people they think of design or maybe, um, you know, a lot of people think of design as making things pretty. Uh, hopefully, we're going to go over what makes design much deeper than that. Right, that makes sense. And I wanna I wanna ask you something because when we talk about design in, in in your realm, a lot of people might think design is you know creating a beautiful website or maybe you know you know as you mentioned drawing a certain in a certain way or really the more artistic side. But I wanna ask you, what does design mean for you? When we talk about design and especially in what you do on on a day to day basis. What does design involve? Because I imagine, you know, this term is ever evolving and not only does it include creative, but it also includes today to mean how something operates, how something functions. What is the experience of, of, of someone that uses a certain product? So what does it mean to you, design exactly? Yes. So, so look, I'll, I'll be very honest with you. It, it is a subjective term. It's impossible to offer that kind of single authoritative definition of this term. But you know, as a designer, you can use design to define design because one of the biggest concepts in design and the most important concept is the idea of framing, looking at something from multiple dimensions or multiple point of views to better understand it. So rather than saying it is the one thing, it is the silver bullet definition, everybody has to follow. It's less of that. And it's more of here are the possibilities for it. 
So, so maybe, you know, I, I like when people ask me that question, um, you know, I, I like to mention the statement and it's a perfectly uh, well-constructed, at least grammatically statement. It's uh, design is to design the design of a design. And if you say <laughs> that, and, and, and there's, a, there's a professor, his name is uh, John Heskett. He was the, the first one that actually put this statement together. And when you reflect on it, there isn't anything wrong with that statement. But in the first uh, me, uh, mention of the word, you can think of design as a general concept. You can also think of it as an activity that somebody would do or, or undertake. Um, it can also mean a plan or an intention that you have. And in a lot of cases, where I would say the majority of people would think about it is that it's a finished outcome, a product, a service, or an experience. Mm. And, and all of those are, are, are really valid. But if there was one thing that I would leave you with on, on what it means to me, uh, without going into too much philosophy on it, is that in, in my view, design is really about transforming the existing situation or existing situations into better situations. So that's what design does, looks at an existing situation and, and guides a group of people collaboratively um, into making better ones. That's amazing. I love this definition. And honestly, it is something to think about that statement. I don't even know if I can repeat it because it's, it's so sophisticated. But in this, in this day and age, design has changed so much to mean so much more than just what something looks like or you know the, the appearance of a certain product or or a certain software, et cetera. But now it also means how, you know, what is the usability? What is the experience that the journey that a customer goes through? And even that is design, right? When we talk about if someone walks into our, our, our business or our store, and then, you know, what do they have to do to get to the cash register to order to order a product and then to receive it and to walk out? Even that, there's there's mm -hmm. design in that, right? I mean, you're designing the customer journey, the customer experience. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. I, 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 would, I would say that fundamentally, it's really about discovering an unmet human need. A mm -hmm. human need that, that sometimes, by the way, people can't articulate what that need is. So, so it's not about going and asking people, what do you need? And then taking that and then building something, but mm -hmm. really uncovering the true needs and what people say and what people do, we know are not the same thing. Not, mm -hmm. not because they're bad people, but because how our brains and how our memory is constructed, we don't have the ability to answer some of the questions, especially if they're subjective questions, correct, uh, in, a, in a correct way. So, so I would 100% agree with you, discovering those unmet needs and building an experience, which you, you described as, as somebody's journey going through accomplishing that goal mm -hmm. or uh, fulfilling that need, that's yeah. all design, and also doing that through some sort of means, a product, mm -hmm. a service, um, a value proposition of some sort. So all of that is design in my, in my opinion. It's amazing, mashallah. I love that. And honestly, I'm a huge fan of design. And I mean, you can't run a business, you can't be an entrepreneur without, you know, implementing design in everything that you do. But we're also going to talk today about leadership, right? And mm -hmm. that's our discussion. It's the intersect of design and leadership. And I think a great way to broach this topic and for many people watching, they might think, you know, all of this makes sense love what you're talking about, but now how does this connect to leadership? What does design have to do with leadership? Yes. What are, and I think a, a great place to start is really what are the common traits between good designers and good leaders, right? What is it that makes a good designer and a good leader? Is there commonalities? I would say a lot, 
a lot of commonalities. Mm. And and for me, maybe maybe just setting stage for me the the idea of of having a great leader and maybe reflecting on your life on on your viewers' lives. Think about anybody that had um, a positive impact to your life, and I would consider that a person a leader. So great leaders in general are people that can positively impact the lives of other people around them. And 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 I think that leadership as as a as a concept or as a topic is a bit of an art and a science. Um, and it, and it's really around that social influence to motivate a group of people and um, help them in a way to act towards a common uh, goal or achieving a common goal. Um, that being said, and, and how we kind of spoke already about what design is, I, you know, I would claim that there's a lot of intersection. And, and for me, like to your point, great leaders and great designers share um, common human capacities. They mm -hmm. think of them as traits or things that, um, or, or abilities that they exhibit to make them great at what they do, being great designers and great leaders. Uh, precisely, I would say they're both able to practice authentic empathy and underline authentic. It's very important. Mm -hmm. uh, the second one I would say is, is really around finding meaningful problems. And, and notice I, I really focus on the finding aspect rather than just the solving aspect, uh, because I do believe that it's more important to find the right problem to solve rather than solve um, the wrong problem in a, in a way. The, the third is, is really that the both great leaders and great designers uh, are both really good about, around creating positive environments for the people that they work with or the people that they design for. Um, and the fourth is the art around asking better questions. And I think that that's, that's very important because I think there is a lot of value in asking better questions and maybe we'll get to that in detail later. And finally, great designers and great leaders embrace ambiguity. They're okay with not knowing. They're okay with vagueness, or at least not knowing yet. And they have an ability to get out of that and be comfortable with that vagueness. So those are five human capacities that I, uh, I believe great designers and great leaders have in common. I'm going to see the one that I can relate to the most right now is definitely embracing ambiguity as an entrepreneur. I mean, nothing that you do is predictable and there's always, you know, new problems and new challenges that pop up and you, mm -hmm. there's so like, you have to be comfortable with that. Right. And I want to talk about each one of these traits that you mentioned. I even put them in the bottom there so people can see them clearly. I want to focus on each one and really understand the why behind it and understand your thinking behind, you know, how we can leverage these traits to, maybe work on them to get better at them, to increase you know, our, our proficiency in practicing authentic empathy, in asking great questions, in embracing ambiguity, so we can become better leaders and better designers in everything that we do. So as entrepreneurs and leaders, you know, much of our time is spend, spent solving problems, right? And for many of uh, our audience watching, they're solving problems on a consistent basis, right? We're always trying to, you know, mm -hmm find a challenge and then find a better solution to that challenge than what's already available out there. Now, let's focus on that a little bit. What is the best approach or the best way to approach problem solving in your opinion? Uh, a question for you, which is something we spoke about. What's more important, solving the problems right or finding the right problem to solve? So remember that. I would argue mm -hmm. that finding the right problem to solve is very important. So my advice to you, to your audience is, start by getting better 
at framing meaningful problems. And while it might be challenging and you might think, why am I spending so much time on framing a problem? But it's everything. Because if you don't arrive at the right problem, you're going to be led down uh, the wrong path. So right. a lot of times you will be solving the wrong problem and you'll be thinking, why am I putting so much effort and things are not working? It's because you haven't spent that time on discovery. So that's the first point I would mention. Uh, the second point is, you know, when you kind of dive in deeper, well, give us something, you know, I would like to share with you some, some what I call the golden rules about problem design, about crafting those design challenges. Um, they can be any kind of challenge. And by the way, when I say design challenge, I'm just talking about an opportunity. The word problem in itself sometimes have this, you know, negative connotation to it. Uh, but think about it as a challenge in general. And, and I would say that uh, there's six things that make for good challenges as you're kind of framing them and creating those right uh, challenges. Number one, it has to be human first. Right. Uh, if you, and, and, and to, to, to think about it a little bit deeper, it, it's really about focusing on that human need rather than a functional benefit. If your business can operate without humans, meaning that you don't need anybody else to help you build what you're doing, you don't need anybody else uh, to sell or to, sorry, to buy or to sell to, in this case, what you're <laughs> offering, then you can ignore this. But I would say that the majority of cases, you do need humans around you. So human first becomes critical. The second one is any design challenge that you write for yourself, that you craft for yourself has to be solution free. A lot of the times we want to convince ourselves that, oh, now we're paying attention to problem discovery and problem design. But we do want to go and build that chatbot, or we do want to create that platform, or whatever. Right. So we start, you know, disguising our solutions as a problems, and we say things around how might I do the thing that I wanted to do? How might I build that chatbot, or how might I build that platform? And that happens right. all the time. So I can relate make, to it. <laughs> so make sure that it's not a problem um, disguised as a solution, and it's solution free. The the third one I would I would mention is that it has to be scoped scoped right. So think realistically here. While most of us would want to solve for you know, world peace, and, and it's a good thing to, to aim for, um, it might be too broad for you and what the scope that you're trying to do. So the right problem is somewhere on that ladder of, uh, ladder of abstraction. On the other side, you don't want to scope it to be something very small to say, uh, I need to change the color of the button on my website. That's, that's maybe scope too, too narrow. So finding that right scope to be able to uncover unexpected outcomes is the third very important golden rule in that framing of problems. Um, and the fourth one is really about having a point of view. Sometimes when you craft these problem statements for yourself or for your teams, you know, you'd find that it's everything. It's a mismatch. You know, how might we do this and this, but not that or the other? It becomes, uh, it doesn't provide that unique perspective. So it has to have a single point of view. Ideally, which is number five, is that it has to be framed as a question. And questions really open up possibilities. And finally, number six, is that it has to be actionable and understood. If you don't understand it, if others don't understand it within your team, in some cases, maybe your clients are working with you to solve a problem, then really it's not a good problem because nobody understands it except yourself. So uh, those are what I would say are six tips on uh, crafting those meaningful problems and starting there. And once you have it, the idea is that you arrived at the right problem and you're much 
in a better position to be able to find that right solution and discover forward. Hmm. Uh, there's something I want to say about that, actually. Um, I don't know if you read the book, The One Thing. Uh, I believe the author was Gary Keller. Uh, and essentially in, in that book, he mentions that the quality of our of our lives is, is determined by the quality of the questions we ask ourselves. Right. And, and really, he focuses on the importance of asking questions and how also in this book, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or even just someone who wants to figure out what should I be focusing on? What should I be working on? He crafts meaningful questions that you should be asking yourself that are going to allow you to find the answer to what you should be working on, working towards, what you should be focusing on. And you're mentioning now as well that asking meaningful questions is an important part of this. I want to focus a little bit on that and, and understand why are questions so important? Why is it so important to focus on the mm -hmm. question before we focus on the answer because a lot of people do focus on the answer, right? And we we tend to think of the solution and then we come up with a question for it, just like you mentioned. So why is that so important? Uh, that's a great question, uh, a lot <laughs> of questions. but um, I think questioning in general, I mean, it's, this is something fundamental in our Dean, in, in, in our day-to-day -day lives that I would encourage everybody to do. Question, questioning in general is such a powerful tool. Uh, and why? it's because it unlocks a lot of value, a lot of unhidden value um, or a lot of hidden value. And, and I think the, to your point, shifting your focus from an answers first to a questions first approach right. is critical. But, but again, let's, let's be more practical here. Why, why is it important? Right. And I would say first it unlocks learning because on the other side, there's learning of course of what you're gonna learn uh, in, in the answer. It, it also builds interpersonal bonds. When you're asking people questions, people wanna talk about themselves. I mean, I, I was reading this study this other day around, um, actually it was matrimonial services and uh, uh, you know dating apps of, of different sorts. And they were getting feedback from their, um, from their audience about like how did things go? You know, they would have these different events. And the number one feedback was, I wished, he or she asked me more questions. Why? Because people build those interpersonal bonds through the questions. The third one is, I mean, we know this, uh, you need to think about a way, um, if, you, if you kind of reflect, when you ask a question that already humbles your ego. And no matter what you say, we all have egos and we need to tame them uh, over time. And being able to ask the question and say, I don't know, and I'm actually asking that humbles your ego which is very a very important tool i find to keep your ego in check right. and finally it also allows you to create new opportunities opportunities uh that a lot of people wouldn't take because they never asked you know i i was watching the other day uh, an old uh, interview with steve jobs and he said um you know he's talking about the difference between dreamers and doers and he was talking about his first job um, at HP and how he got it, where he, he just gave the, the CEO a call and said, I need some parts to build a, a sequence calculator. And the guy laughed and said, sure, I'll, I'll give them to you. But the idea is that you asked, and a lot of people are scared to ask. Mm -hmm. So, so those, are, those are, I think, are, are four very important things on why does it matter uh, in general, you know, when people ask like, okay, I get it. Theoretically, questions are important. How do I get better at it? And I, and I always say, start by asking more. It's through that practice. 
of that you're going to start getting better. Ask more questions. Make it a point to ask more questions. Open questions are much better over close questions. So stop asking even people in your day to day, uh, you know, did you have a great weekend? Because it's a very leading question. It's a yes or no close question. A better question would have been, uh, how was your weekend? Which is more neutral. So open over closed. If you're asking a series of questions, and that's my third point on how to do it effectively, is plan the sequence. The sequence of what you're asking is very important, especially if you're using it as a persuasion tactic or as an intellectual inquiry of some sort. Make sure that you plan what questions you want to answer first. Uh, the fourth, I would say, is uh, follow-up questions are much more effective because it does give the person a perspective that you listen to something they had to say and you followed up on what they said. So I would favor those follow-up questions over others. Uh, obviously, number, number five, I think, is what I'm at. Number five is aim to frame them thoughtfully. So frame your questions in a thoughtful way. Some questions, if framed wrong, may imply something that you don't want the other person to feel. Uh, so think through that. Be, be thoughtful around it. And, um, and I think the other last two points, I hope they're not escaping me, are go casual. Don't be too formal in, in your approach. Uh, and always, always play back your understanding. Because you can hear an answer if, you're, if this is a, a conversation. But if it's also a research question that you have, Playback is very important because you can verify your understanding if there is someone else, but also uh, say that story to yourself and, and verify if, if what you learned is accurate or not. So I hope that answers your question. I spoke to you about why asking questions is important and how to do it. Yeah, uh, I mean, honestly, yeah. this is something that people, I mean, I mean, right now, like this is an episode that I mean, I would have to replay myself and like take notes because there's so much value being shared. And honestly, everything you're sharing is, is impactful and we can directly use it to improve in our business and our lives and our careers. And really the importance of asking questions is also stressed in what you mentioned persuasion, which is something that we put emphasis on when I talk to my students when we're having a call with a potential client, with a prospect, it's not about trying to sell them your service by trying to you know, tell them there's all these bells and whistles, but instead to mm -hmm. ask these meaningful questions where you can uncover their problems, their pain points. So you can then position your solution as you know, what's going to get them the gateway to mm -hmm. what they desire, right? To, to, to pleasure, essentially, to a solution that, they, that you want to lead them to. So... Questions is just not only persuasion, but in connecting with people and building relationships and finding meaningful problems. There's just so many uses for it. And I, I completely agree with this. And I just wanted to add on to that, really just how important it is in sales. Now, to move on from this and speak about something else that you also mentioned, which mm -hmm. I'd love to touch upon, you talked about empathy and, and specifically authentic empathy. Mm -hmm. And Really, you're telling me right now that authentic empathy is important in design and it's important in leadership. And for someone like me who listens to that, who hears this, I mean, uh, as someone who's designed websites before and, and designed customer experiences, et cetera, I've never thought of empathy as something that I needed, you know, when it came to performing these tasks. So I want to know your perspective. Why do you feel like this is important? Why does it make better leaders? Why does it make better designers? Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those uh, very unique things that we're created with as humans. Um, so, so empathy for me is that, again, it's a, it's a human capacity. Mm. And, and if I was to define it, it's really about understanding how someone else feels 
but it's understanding their feeling from their point of view, not yours, which is very critical. So it's not simply your ability to detect someone's emotions and say, okay, I get it. They're, they're, they're angry. They're happy. I, I get it. It's really around taking that and, and understanding what others are feeling, but also experiencing that emotion yourself. That's really what authentic empathy is about. Hmm. And, and I think the value of, of that empathy, uh, that this very unique human capacity we were created with, is that it, it's, it doesn't necessarily just come from the understanding of feeling what another person is feeling, but it's really about what are you going to do with it? So you have that understanding, but what the, the true power is going to come after that understanding happens. Um, in, in a general sense, I would say empathy is is critical to, to a number of things. You think about like how, how we how we are as humans, the the the, the way we we evolve, the, the the societies we live in. But empathy is really critical to connecting people. Without it, you, you know, it, it's it's what connects people. It also helps heal people in traumatic situations. And traumatic situation could be uh, it's a business failure. It could be something that happened in family. It could be anything. But that empathy. Is that what brings people, well, humans together, and and go through a healing process? It's also critical in building trust. If I can trust that you can feel, and you can uh, have the perspective of how I'm feeling, then I can trust you more. Um, I believe empathy also empowers change, and I'm very I'm very passionate about this topic because, uh, in a lot of cases. You know, you'd see a lot of injustice that's happening around the world and, you know, not going to get into examples here. But if it wasn't for that empathy, you get a lot of people not willing to participate, not willing to make a change in a place far away where, oh, well, these people are dying over there. We don't care. It's because of that empathy that we can create change because we feel or we can have the capacity to feel what they're going through and be able to stand up uh, with them against that kind of injustice they're going in. And, mm-hmm. and I would say from a business perspective, empathy also sparks creativity. Because once you understand that human need that we spoke about before, then I can have true empathy with my clients, uh, with the audience, with the people that I work with, and then be creative on how do I solve problems that we're facing together. So it's it's very, very critical in my opinion. So it's essentially to really develop the capacity to put yourself in in someone else's shoes right and yes. and by doing so you can not only be a better leader but also a better designer because you can understand if i if they were in this situation if they were to go down this path what would that experience be like and you can only really fully understand that if you can practice empathy a hundred percent a hundred percent the only the only i guess not a caveat or a warning that i would give is that you know, sometimes I see people getting into this and say, you know what, you know, I get it. I just want you to tell me some, you know, common pitfalls. What, what are some of the watch outs? And I would say that, you know, in a lot of cases, um, maybe share with, with you some some common ones is please, yeah. empathy can never be demanded. You cannot ask for it. So it's almost like respect. You know, you can't walk around, ask people, you know, respect me, respect me, respect. Nobody's going to respect you. You're going to have to earn it. Empathy is another thing. For it to work, you cannot demand it. Uh, and that's where a lot of situations where people say, like, have some empathy. 
They won't. They won't get it by you demanding that empathy. It's much deeper than that. Um, the other, uh, you know, common, I wouldn't say pitfall, but like maybe watch out, something uh, that you need to be aware of is that you experience non-selectively. So think about professions or a business where maybe you're doing something like counseling or coaching, but you're getting uh, quite close to our clients, understanding some of their problems. Imagine you're, you're maybe a psychotherapist and the amount of people that you see, and if you're going to have authentic empathy with all of them and truly practice that, then you're going to feel all the negativity, all the problems that they're, they're having from their frame, and that might damage you. So you have to be a bit selective on when to apply that. Um, and then I would say the third most common um, pitfall that I see when practicing empathy is that you provide solutions. And this is not the time if you're practicing authentic empathy to, to provide solutions. Mm -hmm. Why? Because somebody is in an emotional state. And we know that if you're in an emotional state, you make irrational decisions. So uh, providing solutions is not, if you're providing solution, then you know you're taking away from practicing that authentic empathy. And of course, in some cases, you know, again, don't want to go into it, but you'd see um, situations where people practice empathy, but it's not authentic and it's devoid from values. Hmm. A person that is, uh, you know, opening up about something or, or a person that thinks that you're providing uh, or practicing empathy, if you don't have values, um, this would be a situation where this person can be easily manipulated. You see you know, tyrants across the, the globe doing this very well, very effectively, pretending that they have that empathy with uh, the group of people that they're governing uh, and saying this is what we do, what we care about. But in fact, it's that devotion or, or being devoid from those values. So ask yourself, you know, am I providing solutions? Am I experiencing non-selectively? Am I demanding it? And maybe I shouldn't. Uh, am I doing this in accordance to my values? All of these things are very, very important, important common pitfalls to watch out for. A hundred percent. And also, I mean, when we're talking about this and we're talking about, you know, design and leadership, I mean, how important is it for a leader to empathize with his subordinates, right? I mean, to, to understand and when, when, when you feel like, you know, not even just in management, but just as a leader in general, even if we talk about a larger scale and you mentioned dictators, like if we talk about, countrywide and we talk about the president and you know there's the people that feel like this president empathizes with my cause and he understands you know what it is that i want and and so they support him and what happens when you feel like a leader does not have empathy for your situation well you're probably not going to support him right whether it's on a global or on a countrywide scale sorry such as a president or even on a very minus cool scale such as your direct supervisor or manager so it's it's so important not only you know within the workplace or within a business but also really in any endeavor, because I think no matter what it is that we do, we are a leader in some way. And even sometimes simply a leader in terms of the family unit and mm -hmm. practicing empathy towards our children and towards uh, our spouses. Right. So I think the importance just touches so many areas and it really allows you to live a better life in general. A hundred percent. I mean, I'll, I'll let your viewers, um, maybe, maybe uh, you've heard this before. Maybe you would know, who said this, but the, uh, I'm doing some translation here in my head, but the, uh, the, the best amongst, amongst you is the best for the people around them. So mm, yes. uh, yeah. it, it's very important to, to remember that a, a leadership 
position that you're given or even being a leader is about serving others. If you're serving yourself, then you haven't really uh, became a true leader. So it's, it's really about working for your team, not having your team work for you. And that, I think, mindset is, is uh, difficult for some people to think about because naturally we have that, um, you know, uh, inner uh, ego saying, well, I want the power, or I want the authority or whatever it is that's guiding us. And to put yourself down in a way, in a positive way and say, I'm here to serve is, is not an easy thing. But I think um, through empathy, through practicing, maybe you can get there. Definitely, inshallah, 100%. And I love that we're touching upon this. And there's more that I want to touch upon. So I want to talk also about what you mentioned, which is creating positive environments. Because when we talk about empathy, and that relates closely, is that there has to be an environment that encourages empathy, that that promotes you know openness and, and, and building these relationships and connections. And that environment needs to nurture uh, those kind of results from people, from yourself. So how can we create positive environments as leaders for our teams. And even for myself, I mean, I'd love to hear your opinion on this because our team is growing out Omarpreneur and I want to make sure that, you know, we're promoting, we're, we have an environment where we have, like people are inclined to really deliver their best work and, and really bring exceptional results. Do you have any tips on creating that kind of environment, not only for a business owner, but for a leader in general? It's a, it's a, it's a complicated uh, topic, but I would say mm -hmm. in short, you have to intentionally design it. You have to mm. intentionally design that environment. It's not going to happen by accident. And, and it starts from that realization that I just mentioned. It starts by being a leader and coming to the realization that you serve the people around you. If that mindset shift doesn't happen, it, it's going to be very difficult to create a positive So, um, so that, that comes, um, you know, as, as, as a very important topic. So you as a leader need to focus on their needs rather than your needs and, and continue to tame that ego. But, but I would say, you know, maybe I'll bring my behavioral design perspective uh, to it. I would say your challenges should be crafted. The questions, the problems that you should uh, craft would be around maybe three to four things. Number one is you have to develop some sort of a sense of history, a story around your organization, your goal. How did you come about? You know, the other day I, I was uh, looking at your post with, uh, you know, where you were and where you are today. And, and there is a sense of story to it. And that's very, very important because it does, uh, it, it does give people a sense of identity. If we don't know our own history as an organization, as people, uh, and so on, we can't really relate. So developing a sense of history is critical. The other one is you want to bring a sense of unity, whether it's clients coming together as a community, your employees coming together, um, your stakeholders, but that sense of unity. And the, the most um, uh, important thing is, in my opinion, is starting with purpose, starting with a clear and aspiring purpose, a cause. I mean, Simon Sinek, wrote many books on this. He has a, he has a book called uh, Leaders Eat Last. He, he was the first one that created this golden circle with uh, Start With Why. And then he, I think he wrote, I'm looking at my library. Uh, he, he wrote another book called uh, Find Your Why, which was more mm -hmm. of a practical guide. 
I'm not affiliated in any ways. I'm just mentioning them as a reference to kind of They're good resources, definitely. Good resources. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is, I think it's really about promoting that sense of membership. What is it that if I'm a client of yours, if I'm an employee of yours, I feel a sense of belonging. I feel that sense of membership that I that I can think of you being part of a tribe. You know, we are connected via this tribe. We have something in common. Um, and finally, think about framing challenges around increasing that social exchange, whether it's events that you're going to have with people, with, with clients, but how do you increase that social exchange? So I would say those four things are really around taking those behavioral design challenges and saying, how do I, you know, uh, develop a better sense of history, uh, bring that sense of unity or create that sense of unity and think of my cause and refine my cause or my, my purpose, uh, promote that sense of membership and belonging and um, finally, increasing that uh, social cohesion or social exchange between your clients and employees. Mm -hmm. And to to kind of continue with this with this topic, and I think it would be natural segue, which is, you know, a lot of times because we have the history, we have you know the foundation that needs to be there, but at the same time, you mentioned as well, we have to embrace ambiguity because you know there are a lot of uncertainties and. Sometimes when it comes to creating a positive environment, mm -hmm. if we don't approach ambiguity in, in the proper way and our subordinates or our team feels like we don't know where we're going and we don't know, you know, there's no clear direction, there's no clear purpose, then, then things start to fall apart. And I think that's also part of it. And it's something you mentioned earlier. So let's talk about this a little bit. Let's talk about ambiguity and uncertainty and doubt. Is there a good way to overcome this? so we can become better leaders, create better environments. Yeah, I, I think ambiguity is, is, uh, is an, naturally, it's one of those things that feels uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. we, we want certainty in our lives. That's, as humans, we want a sense of control. Not necessarily control, but we want a sense of control. We want to feel that we're going to wake up the next day in the same bed that we slept in, that you know the sun is going to come out, um, our family is going to be around, our work, our business is going to be around. We don't want to wake up to something different. So that kind of certainty is important. And it sometimes goes against our nature to embrace it. But there is a true power in being vulnerable. And it's a difficult thing to grasp because in a lot of, um, I mean, look, culturally speaking, a lot of Eastern culture, but even, even in, in Western societies, you raise to be self-independent not vulnerable, being able to know all the answers, uh, and, and, and kind of this, this idea of being strong means that you cannot be vulnerable, or at least you can't be vulnerable in, uh, in front of people that you work with. And, mm -hmm. I, and I think it's, it's that kind of vulnerability to be able to allow yourself to say, I don't know yet. And I don't know yet is, is a perfectly good answer. But be comfortable saying that. People would respect you for it, by the way, you know, we, we have a saying in, um, in Egypt around that nobody doesn't know. If you were to ask anybody for anything, they would tell you and they will go on, you know, you know uh, whether it's a direction for a street and, uh, or, or their, you know, their philosophy in, in raising kids, they always have an answer. So it's very important to, to be comfortable to say, I don't know. Uh, the second one is, is really around challenging whenever you're linguistically, you know, looking at the statements that you're saying, 
challenge your shoulds to coulds. So rather than have that certainty to say, should be like that, life should be this way, everything should work, and say, frame that as, here's something we could do, here's something we could explore. That helps a lot. So challenge those shoulds to coulds. Um, and, I, and I think a mindset, the third point that I would mention is try framing it around um, a bit of a bargain. You know, I would say a bit of a negotiation because you get you, you get what you negotiate. You don't get what you deserve in general. And I believe in, in that. And, and if you're negotiating with yourself is, is think about it as if I was to sacrifice that familiarity and that certainty, what am I going to get out of it? And I would say you get innovation and creativity if you That's sacrifice amazing. it. And then that frame is, is very important. Um, in a lot of cases, when you're stuck and you're uncertain for long, it helps to be deliberate about changing the context that you're in to gather new information. I mean, it, this is also very clear from our dean. What happens when you're angry? What are you recommended to do? Change the context you're in. If you're sitting, stand up. Uh, you know, if you can make wudu, go and do it. If you can pray to rakahs, go and do it. All these are examples of deliberately changing that context to be able to handle your emotional state, but also to be able to handle that uncomfortable feeling about being uncertain. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that I would say, I think it's number five now, if, if, you're, if you guys are counting, but <laughs> clearly articulate what's clear. It helps to put down what do you know and what you know you don't know. That helps you navigate that ambiguity to say, well, here's what we know is true, and let's put it down. And here's what we know that we don't know, and also put that down. Um, and I find that engaging others, being able to be open about it and, and communicating that also help. Um, a bonus tip is something that I do is that I track the insights. So uh, what do I mean by that is that it's not, it's not going to be the first time you feel uncertain in any problem or situation it helps to keep a journal of some sort to track how you navigated this. What insights do you have? So the next time you feel that feeling, you can go back and you can look at it and say, oh, I guess, you know, I've done this before. I, I, I'm, I feel a bit more confident about being vulnerable and uncertain because I was able to navigate it before. And, and those are some tips that, um, that I think are, are, uh, are going to be very useful. Uh, but in short, I would say it, it's critical to embrace that ambiguity and, and it opens up uh, discovery for you. So that way you're not programmed from the outset on something. So it, it, it really challenges you to embrace that and it really helps you uh, in, be inspired. And it gives people that space to collaborate because, you know, who wants to work on something with a predetermined end result? You want to be part of, of this process of pulling your hair and saying what are we going to do and it's uncertain and i don't know but it, but it's it's uh, it's the way for you to be able to grow that expert judgment on when to commit to something and what to commit to but also think about when to defer commitment and um and i think in design that's that's called uh, conserving ambiguity is the term they give it conserving it to allow for creativity to happen that's amazing. I love that, brother. Well, honestly, I hope the audience has their notepads out and they're writing all of this down because honestly, we've shared so much gold on this episode, mashallah. And you've honestly shared so many actionable tips and steps that we can take to implement 
all of these traits that will allow us to become better leaders, better designers. And before we get to the questions, because I know there's a lot coming in right now from the audience, questions that they want to ask you, inshallah, so we'll try to get to them as many as possible. I'll ask you a question that I ask every single guest on the show. And it's really, if you could meet uh, a Sewi from, you know, let's say, you know, 15, 20 years ago, a bit of a younger version of you, just starting off maybe his professional career and, uh, you know, he's excited and he's maybe not too sure what he wants to do yet. And you could tell him, or you could tell him one thing right, that he could hold on to, that he could, you know, keep in mind to help him through that path. What would that one thing be? I love that question. And I ask that question sometimes to leaders myself. Um, <laughs> the, the, the one that I would maybe, uh, the one thing that I, one lesson that I would give my younger self is being okay uh, with understanding that you don't have full control over everything. Mm. I think, you know, sometimes you grow up with that, again, level of certainty and, and you, you think that uh, facing a problem, maybe it also had some influence, you know, it was, it was a time where there's a lot of like self-help books that talk about all these, uh, you can control everything in your life and, you know, if you think it, it's going to happen. But being okay with saying that I understand that I can control my effort, but not necessarily control the outcome. And, and there is a bigger power that, that is in, in charge of my outcome. And being okay with that result is, I think, the biggest lesson. Because I, I struggled with that a lot with, you know, family-related uh, things and, and work-related things. But if that's a, that ability to say that uh, you don't control it and being okay with it, I think, is, is the lesson that I would give. 100%. Well, honestly, that's beautiful. And I think every person can learn from that. And that's why I love asking that question so much. Brother, honestly, you've shared so much valuable gold on this episode, mashallah. And honestly, I myself, I'm going to probably watch this and take notes. So I'm so excited for that. But we got a few questions from the audience. And sure. I'd love to get your input on a few of them, inshallah, those are watching. And thank you guys for watching. If you have any questions for Brother Asawi, please drop them in the comments right now. We'll try to get to as many as possible. We got one here from uh, Facebook, and it says, is there a concept more effective of, of asking, is there a concept that essentially is more effective on how asking questions could be leveraged besides the one we know from the Japanese concept of Kaizen? So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that concept, yeah. but yeah, Kaizen is essentially where it's kind of like a rotating circle and it goes all the way from the leaders to the subordinates and back to the leaders. It's continuous so improvement in exactly. Japanese. I worked for Toyota, exactly. so we, we learned about Kaizen, about Nimawashi, which is consensus building, and all of these are, are, are uh, interesting concepts for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, is there another concept that you could recommend or that you know of that's also just as effective or more effective uh, that also relates to how we can use asking questions within an organization? I, I, th I think the concept of um, framing in design, I would say if, if, if you're um, to, to, to answer this question, if you read more, and there's many books on this, and I can maybe drop some recommendations, but mm -hmm. uh, the idea, if there's a topic to read on, to research, is framing and design reasoning. They give you a lot of tips uh, on how to ask a more effective question. How do you frame it right? What's the power of the frame? Uh, what would the question include? Uh, all of these are related to framing as a discipline on how to frame questions and make them more effectively. So look up framing questions or framing in design. Um, and now some books, again, uh, for recommendations, there is uh, there is a great book on this topic. It's called A More Beautiful Question. 
mm-hmm. and it kind of guides you a little bit. Uh, there's some courses that are free online that you can take into more of the qualitative research if you're thinking about an application of applying it with clients and asking clients. So it takes you through qualitative questions with, with clients. There's the five why concept around asking yourself multiple why questions and being able to trace it back again from a lot of the Toyota kind of uh, mentality around five whys. So those are three that I that I think are are quite relevant. But if there is one and you don't have time, then I would I would say thinking of innovation um, and how it drives creativity is focused on uh, framing in design. Um, that would be the most relevant. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm definitely going to go check out those books as well. Thank you for sharing that on the podcast. I appreciate it. I love always when we share books and resources because it gives people a chance to say, okay, this is more that I can look into that's in regards to the topic. So please feel free to share more. There's another question here and it's, I love this question. It's what is the basic criteria to implement the values mentioned by Asawi to create strong leadership? So it's an implementation question. How can we, now that we know what we need to do and, and how to do it, what are some tips that you can maybe give to implement these to be to be better leaders? You're thinking like is the question in general like on on all all to see how uh, taking everything and applying it. Um, I believe that's what it is. Uh, so, what is the basic criteria to implement the values mentioned by Sawi? So, I guess the question is really, what are some things maybe that we should look out for? Some things that we should keep in mind to help implement these values that we mentioned over the podcast. Yeah, I, I think if you're referring them as values, values are, are uh, you know, think of it as, in my opinion, it's it's a bit of your own personal code of conduct, right? Mm. It's, it's really what keeps you in check, what you live by. It's uh, it's your behavioral compass. It, to make them less abstract, they only come to life when they're tested. So if, mm. I, if there's something that I would say is put yourself in uncomfortable situations, like I said, although it might not seem natural, to be able to practice these things or test your own values. Sometimes they will come to you, but find situations where you can almost prototype some of the things we spoke about and put yourself in that situation. Uh, and that will be the true test. You know, you take an example like courage, everybody can say, oh, I, 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 courage is, is definitely part of my values, but it's only when that person is tested in a difficult situation, um, then we will truly know if they have that courage or not. So in general, I would answer it to say, take everything that we spoke about today and look at situations where you can test your own self and your implementation and you might not get it right. And that's okay. It's an iterative process where you can grow. And, and I would say, remember that you're competing with yourself. You're not competing with anyone else. Awesome. I love that. I love that. We got one more that we're going to squeeze in inshallah. Sure. We got five minutes. So let's squeeze this one in because it's really good. And this question is also from Facebook and it's a lot of the work that you do involves people and relationships. When we talk about empathy, compassion, asking the right questions, et cetera. The question is, in light of the new normal, where a lot of employees are working from home and only see each other virtually, how do you see these values still being implemented in a way that will enable the same level of problem solving in organizations? Wow, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> it's it's challenging to be done in a virtual environment, especially if you're establishing new relationships. Um, I mean, a conversation in person where you're working with others is very different than running a virtual workshop. Mm-hmm. But I would say I've, I've done this um, and it, it's, it was challenging. And you can kind of see trends that are happening. A lot of people are 
just not mentally engaged because we need that social contact. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, the way I would answer it is as much as possible in a virtual environment, use as many cues to grab people's attention. You know, mm-hmm. you, you use things like your voice, your, your, your words, your video, whatever it is, engage their senses, use their names a lot. I think people, when you call their name, if I say Abby, you know, I, I get Abby's attention. Um, you know, try try your best to ask a lot of questions. So that's what I do. When people know that... ...and making more of a monologue, say like, you know, uh, I'd love if I would hear this person's opinion and let them talk, give them the space, um, ask for their opinion. All of those things are, I think, ways where you can engage them. So you know they're not, you know, uh, passively listening to you and doing something else. Um, but definitely the virtual environment has been challenging and we we're all fatigued by it. And it's okay yeah. again, to be vulnerable and say that, to say, I understand it. And maybe we don't need a video call. Maybe we need a regular phone call, or maybe we can do this over email, but have that sense of empathy to say, I understand that your day is different than me. You might be have having other, um, circumstances than me. So I think practicing there and showing that you understand will put people at ease and will open up more. And some of the other tips hopefully would also help you. Inshallah, definitely 100%. Well, honestly, you shared already so much on this podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you, Brother Asawi, and really to have you share your insights, your knowledge with us about design, about leadership. And there's just so much to take away from this episode. And honestly, it's a lesson, a masterclass by itself that people can listen to over and over again to take different nuggets and implement them. And I think there's so much to learn from, to implement, to improve our lives, our businesses, organizations, and really our careers as well. Now, how can people connect with you to follow you, to you know, stay in touch with what you're up to and uh, you know, just keep in touch with any projects that you might be have, having going on or that you're working on? What, what should, where should we direct people essentially that are listening to this? I, I think that the best place is LinkedIn. For me. Okay. Um, I, I think if there is one platform, find me on LinkedIn. Um, I mean, you can look me up by name. There isn't a lot of people with my name uh, combination. So you'll find me there. That would be the best place. All right. Elsawi Yahya on LinkedIn. E-L-S-A-W-Y-Y-E-H-I-A. All right, guys. So we'll All put right. it on. Awesome. We'll put it on the screen. And we'll make sure to drop it in the description as well. So we'll drop the link in the description so people can, can, can connect and continue to follow you. And maybe you'll share a few more nuggets on your LinkedIn and they can benefit from that as well, inshallah. So, brother, it was an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on this podcast. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. And guys, we'll try to bring him back on for more, inshallah, in the future. And for all of you watching on YouTube, make sure to subscribe. And if you're listening, then make sure to follow us as well on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. And join us next week on Tuesday for another episode. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much, brother. It was an Thank honor. You. Thank you for having so, me. It was an honor. Take Thank care. you so much. Assalamualaikum.